I'm Lisa Tuggle, and this is Evangelination, evangelizing the nation for the best and brightest future of our country, our world, our families, and our eternal souls. And what could be more important than that? We have been meditating on the virtues this year, and we've touched upon two of the cardinal virtues in a somewhat in-depth way, and we have been also variously interrupted in pursuing the remaining virtues on account of Lent and Holy Week topics. Um, so we are launching now back into the cardinal virtues um, and we're taking a, a, a look at justice, but in a roundabout way today. So this serves as an introduction to the virtue of justice, which God willing, we will be focusing upon uh, in a more in-depth way next time. Now. With regard to the life of virtue, let me say this. In the readings for the Holy Mass celebrated yesterday, Wednesday, April 14, 2021, we meditated upon a reading from the Acts of the Apostles that begins with chapter 5, verse 17. And this is what it says, quote, The high priest rose up and all his companions, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, laid hands upon the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, the angel of the Lord opened the doors of the prison, led them out and said, go and take your place in the temple area and tell the people everything about this life. Now, let me repeat that. The angel instructs them to go and tell the people everything about this life. Now let's stop there because this is crucial for us today. Christ came to show us a new way of life. What is this life of which the angel speaks? Of course, there are many shades of meaning here, but the first and most obvious one is that this life of Jesus Christ is a way of life. The whole point was that we might become more alive, that we might adopt a new way of life, a lifestyle that is different from the old lifestyle that so easily proceeds from our fallen human nature, from our tendency to sinful disordering of priorities and values, a way of life that is built upon our human faults and weaknesses instead of uh, virtue. You know, that old way of life leads us uh, to slavery. It makes us vulnerable to slavery in a number of pernicious ways. You see, this fallen way of life is a life and a society without God, without Jesus Christ, who is the face of the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Christianity is not just a set of rules to follow, as the Sadducees seemed bent on doing above us, a pernicious pitfall of the religious life that rejects the spirit of love and mercy. No, Christianity is a way of life. It is a lifestyle that brings about the extraordinary transformation of persons, relationships, families, communities, states, regions, nations, and indeed the whole world. So this lifestyle which Jesus brought and which the apostles were commanded to teach, in which they were set free miraculously from jail to preach, this lifestyle can save the world. 
and not just in the sense of saving each soul in order to secure a positive experience of eternity when we die, something which is indeed important, but the gospel saves us from slavery in this life. This cannot be emphasized enough. The gospel is applicable now to the problems of tyranny and disorder, which can threaten every society today. The gospel gives us a way to live together in peace and goodwill. That is, in fact, what the angels declared at the birth of Jesus Christ. Remember, the angels appeared to the shepherds saying, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to all. That's what they announced at the coming of our salvation. This is the way of life that the newborn infant king came to bring. Peace on earth and goodwill for all. In a word, it's justice. So, how do we have this justice, this peace on earth and goodwill for all? Well, by the practice of the Christian way, which translates as the way of virtue. This is what Christianity is outside the exterior trappings that define our religion. You know, we have the essential liturgical worship of the people together, the hierarchy of authority in the church, its physical and really mystical structure, the books, the Bible, and the catechism, and all such defining features of Christianity, which developed under the leadership and the acts of the apostles and their successors to the present day. But in the midst of all that, we have the essential call, the gospel in practical application in our daily life. So we call this the life of virtue. The apostles were sent by Christ and again by the command of an angel, which he sent to them to do this one thing, to tell the people everything about this life. And this life is the way of virtue. And that is why we are focusing on the life of virtue in this podcast. You know, Jesus Christ lived as the man God for about 30 years, tucked quietly away in a modest home and family life. What was he doing but practicing the way of virtue? No doubt he was preparing for the greatest test of his life, the test of his virtue, of his moral strength, for that is what virtue is. He was doing battle with human weakness itself and defeating it daily, perfectly, in countless ways, through the exercise of virtue. So it was this daily practice of virtue which trained him for the greatest challenge of his earthly life, that of his betrayal, torture, crucifixion, and death. He faced all these things, even allowing them in his divine nature, with extraordinary displays of heroic virtue. See, he trained for it, and he definitely rose to the occasion, no pun intended, in the execution of the ultimate mission for which he was born and came into the world. So he practiced for that hour for over 30 years. He practiced every virtue conceivable so that when his hour came, he could embrace all the betrayal and suffering, principally with faith, hope, and love, especially love. For we are told by the mystics and we learn even from his own words, such as, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We know that Christ's heart was full of love beyond our human imagining. So while he was being tortured, he was loving his torturers, and not just in a kind of intellectual assent to the idea of loving your enemies, as we often struggle to have, 
But no, in a full-hearted, sacred-hearted way, Christ on the cross is the epitome of love. And that's why Catholics insist on having crucifixes in their homes. They are intended to be reminders of the great love we are to have for one another out of love for God and an imitation of Christ's love. Okay. So before Jesus did any preaching at all, he spent 30 years in obscurity. And what was he doing? He was living family life in a virtuous way and working alongside his father, whom we reverently call Joseph the worker, on account of his holiness and virtue as a worker and provider for his family. And he lived with Mary, his mother, who as the sinless new Eve, copied faithfully this way of virtue that he taught with his life. So, that is what we are called to do, and that is the focus of this podcast of Evangelination. Okay, now let's take this reflection to the next level. And here's my second major point for today. It is an idea that I've been mulling over for a while now, and an idea that we will be exploring more fully in the future as Evangelination develops. So this idea is this. Separation of church and state. Okay, the phrase separation of church and state has been egregiously misunderstood in this nation. Okay, today we in the church, we struggle to teach or even reach the next generation with the truth of the gospel because our nation, which was explicitly founded upon and for the sake of biblical principles and more specifically gospel values, has been hijacked by a false application of the phrase separation of church and state. You know, you've heard it often, and as often as you've heard this phrase, I can assure you that if you are alive today, you have heard it bandied about in ways that were never intended by the author of those words. Today we think this means that there is this strange thing called secular. If something is secular, what does that mean? In brief, secularism if you want to look it up on Wikipedia for what that's worth, uh, is defined in mainstream modern parlance as, quote, the separation of religion from civic affairs and the state. And there's a little link there on Wikipedia to go to another entry on separation of church and state, which is defined as, quote, a philosophic and jurisprudential concept for, and I'm truncating a bit here, the creation of a secular state and to disestablishment, the changing of an existing formal relationship between the church and the state. So Wikipedia goes on to say that the idea is derived from, quote, wall of separation between church and state, a term coined by Thomas Jefferson. And it, it says the concept was promoted by enlightenment philosophers such as Locke. Okay. Now, Wikipedia states these things as a matter of fact. However, these so-called facts are not quite factual. They did get one thing right, and that is that Thomas Jefferson was a, the original author of that quotation, you know, quote, wall of separation between church and state. However, the application of this statement has been literally turned on its head and used in a way that is the exact opposite of its intended meaning. And listen, I can prove that. This backwards application of Jefferson's comment has been embedded into law, economics, and politics in our nation, much to our detriment, I might add, and in an expression of 
supreme folly. Listen, I want to tell you so much more about this, but, but let me lead into our reflection on this topic of separation of church and state, which we will take a careful and studied approach to address um, later by inviting you to just consider the following. Okay, are you ready? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18 and following, Jesus Christ says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock, wordplay with his name Peter, which means rock, upon this rock, I will build my, what? Church? Well, actually, the Greek word there is ecclesia or ecclesia. This word was well known in the society of Jesus' day. Did the church exist before Jesus came to establish it? No. He said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Ecclesia was the word that was used. And that was in the parlance of that day. It literally meant a gathering of those summoned. I quote there from Britannica, sorry for the source, but it, it is a relatively common uh it's common knowledge in the field of Greek language study. So um, now this is the really interesting part. In ancient Greece, an ecclesia or ecclesia was an assembly of citizens in a city state. So its roots lay in the agora of the Homeric epics and of that time period uh, when uh, they were being written. So the agora was the meeting of the people, often called it a place where the people met, but it's, it was really the meeting of the people. So uh, the Athenian ecclesia, for which there exists the most detailed record, uh, it was already functioning in Draco's day, that's circa 621 BC, and in uh, the course of Solon's codification of the law, circa 594 BC, close to the time of the Babylonian uh, captivity, exile. The ecclesia or ecclesia became coterminous with the body of male citizens, 18 years of age or older, or does that sound, does that sound familiar, <laughs> who had final control over policy, including the right to hear appeals in the public courts, to take part in the election of archons or chief magistrates, and to confer special privileges on individuals in society. So an ecclesia was a governing body comprised of members of the local community, and it was kept in check by another body that summoned their gatherings. Okay, so in, in the Athens of the 5th and 4th centuries BC, a committee of a governing body would summon the ecclesia for regular meetings, which were held four times in each tenth of the year and for special sessions. Now, I won't get too deeply into the political process there, but suffice it to say for our purposes today that an assembly of this sort, an ecclesia, existed in each Greek city-state or polis, you know, polis. Um, and these, you know, continued to function throughout the Hellenistic and Roman periods. So, so now what was a city-state at that time, a polis? The term polis, from which we get our modern term politics, was defined by Aristotle not so much as a, quote, city-state, as we think of a city or a state today, but rather as, and I quote, an assemblage of houses, lands, 
and property sufficient to enable the inhabitants to lead a civilized life. So we get the word politics from this Greek word polis, and politics literally refers to the matters which pertain to all the people living together in a local community on a daily basis. It refers to our daily lives. See, now our local communities have grown larger and larger to the point of becoming entire nations comprising vast numbers of people. So this is why a political life is often felt to be beyond our reach and really, in a way, irrelevant to our daily lives, you know, we sort of think, I'll take care of my family and my pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, according to our founding fathers, involves owning and maintaining personal property. And we think, you know, I'll take care of all this and let's let the politicians take care of politics. Well, this type of negligent thinking is a recipe for disaster. Okay, nothing could be further from the truth the founding of this nation and from the original its original intent its founding of its founding documents nor could it be further from the original meaning of the greek polis which was community life governed by and for the people with i might add an ecclesia to guide policy okay you see politics is not for politicians who make a career out of running for public office. Politics is simply the policies and parameters of our communal life together that we set as a people living in society with one another. Okay, the polis of Athens uh, was the birthplace of democratic republicanism. It's, you know, uh, well, remember Plato's Republic? Anyway, that is a topic for another day. But suffice it here to say that Aristotle saw each family household, yours and mine, as the oikos, that is the basic social unit of the polis, the political society, and the basic social unit of the oikonomia, or the economy. Okay? So now we have this term oikos, also in Christian thought in the development of the ecclesia. So it was carried over from the Greek and it treats of the oikonomia or economy of divine uh, revelation, the economy of salvation. So what is the economy of salvation? <laughs> well, in a few words, it is virtuous family communal life. That's why our God is a trinity, he's a family, right? In, uh, analogically speaking. So this is what Jesus, Mary, and Joseph lived for about 30 years before Jesus began his public ministry. And anyway, we get this word economy from the Greek oikos, which is the family household, and we acknowledge that our economy today and our political life in this nation today rests upon the foundation of the human family, upon each family household, mother, father, children, and sometimes grandparents and other relatives. The human family is the foundation of the classical political and economic structure, and so it is for our nation as well. Now, however, the human family, male, female, infants in the womb, the definition of marriage and family itself is without doubt under attack today in our nation. 
You see, this is the reason that evangelination exists. The purveyors of socialism, which leads to communism, and the purveyors of globalism, that is a one world order, which usurps our national sovereignty and identity. And, you know, those who would separate marriage, sex, family, and children, all one from another, these insidious ideas are being promoted on college campuses, marketed to the American people through news and entertainment media, and impressed upon our elected officials who are elected to represent us. By, but they are, you know, representing special interest lobbyists who uh, impress these upon their minds and who live like leeches upon our society and try to usurp our representation in Washington, D.C. See, these destructive ideas from you know, lobbyists and think tank tanks and uh, people in power, these destructive ideas are being embedded in federal government policies. In America in such a way that whether those who wield power realize it or not, and I think that they would be very dim-witted if they did not, they're embedding these policies into the fabric of our economic, political, and legal structures in such a way as to strike at the economic and political foundations of our nation itself. See, these are direct attacks on the foundation and viability of our nation. We're experiencing attacks from within. And it's up to you and me, to us, to restore the just and orderly society that our founding fathers envisioned, namely, one nation under God, a true Christian society with Christ's ecclesia as its guide. Okay, now saying that, <laughs> we were established as a Christian society may upset some people initially, but the evidence for this statement of fact is overwhelming. Okay, we will be evaluating that evidence and what that signifies practically in upcoming courses to which I would like to draw your attention. You know, the need for courses is obvious because we simply cannot treat of all the nuances of these issues within the parameters of a brief weekly podcast. So yes, we have courses coming. So be ready to register when they roll out. So now this brings me to the last comment for today. And this touches upon the idea of American exceptionalism. Have you heard of that term before? What makes America so exceptional? Well, obviously it is its unique form of government, of political structure. That makes it so unique as it's a political structure defined by our founding fathers in the United States Constitution, which was developed and signed in 1787. Okay, so we know first that Christianity is a way of life and it makes all the difference in the world. It is the difference between slavery and freedom. Okay, the Paschal Mystery brings us as it brought the, uh, you know, the Israelites, the first Passover brought the Israelites from slavery in Egypt to freedom in their own land. Well, you know, Jesus Christ and the Paschal Mystery brings us from slavery to vice, to the freedom of virtue. And you know what? America proves that. See, America is the great demonstration of this fact that Christianity is a way of life that leads to freedom. Think about it. We have lived under one constitution for over 230 years. Meanwhile, in that same time period, 
when we have had just one form of government, France has had, get this, 15. And in the 20th century alone, Russia has had four. Afghanistan, five. Poland, seven. And the list goes on and on. I'm taking all this from the book America's Godly Heritage by a phenomenal historian named David Barton. Uh, David Barton uh, brought these statistics to light from a number of university research papers on this topic. So you can get his book and look up the, uh, the references there, but they, they're all referenced. So America has remained steady. That's uh, an indication that our constitution and our checks and balances work. You know, we haven't had the numerous upheavals that many, many other countries in the world have had. So America was established to be secure, uh, a secure protection for the rights of individuals. It was designed to be a bastion of freedom, an exceptional nation where tyranny could be kept in check by the unique balances our founding fathers put in place in our constitution. They knew well the sinful tendency of humans. So this is a biblical principle. And with great wisdom, they constructed a constitution which they collectively acknowledged to be founded upon biblical principles and specifically Christian biblical principles. And if you mistrust this statement, again, I can prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that more than any enlightenment deist philosopher, the Bible was the number one most cited source in all the writings and thinking of our founding fathers. They used it as the foundation for their thought and they were not thinking in contrast to it or its principles. They were using it as a support and a spring, uh, springboard for the greatest nation on earth, a biblically-based nation that has lasted for over 230 years with its beautiful um, system of checks and balances. You know, one of our founding fathers, our nation's second president, John Adams, uh, in a speech to the Massachusetts militia, on October 11th, 1798, he had this to say. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. And many, really all, of the founding fathers agreed with him. You know, they uh, knew that religion was essential for uh, us to be able to keep this unique form of government that they established. You know, in 1788, uh, John Adams wrote this in, in the defense, his book, Defense of the Constitutions of the United States of America. Uh, he said this, and I quote, to expect self-denial from men when they have a majority in their favor and consequently power to gratify themselves is to disbelieve all history and universal experience. It is to disbelieve divine revelation and the word of God, which informs us, quote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's Jeremiah 17, 90. He goes on to say, there's no man so blind as not to see that to talk of founding a government upon a supposition that nations and bodies of men left to themselves will practice a course of self-denial. He's talking here about virtue is either to babble like a newborn infant or to deceive like an unprincipled imposter. Wow. So said John Adams. So this is truly the rationale for separating the functions of government so that branches do not collude in power with one another. 
You see, America is not the first nation to have three branches of federal government. That's not what makes us special. England had an executive branch, a legislature, and a judiciary. The problem in England was that the king governed them all, all the branches. He had power over all of them. But our system is designed to frustrate that tendency for one person or one group or one party to have all the power. See, that is why our founding fathers provided internal checks and balances so that the damage that corrupt officials could do would be mitigated and limited. You know, today, regrettably, we have forgotten this obvious bit of wisdom. It's, it's a bit of common sense, which is really an aspect of the virtue of prudence uh, as well as the virtue of justice. Okay, so here's just one example of what I mean. You know, today there is an initiative to remove the filibuster in Congress. You know, the reason that the majority party wants to remove this little check is so that they can have all the power, so that they can reign like an oligarchy, like a king, whose tyranny was the reason that patriots rose up to fight the American Revolutionary War, so that they and their descendants, like us, might live in a society without the harassment of self-indulging monarchs. So we don't need uh, a legislative body that is uh, acting as a monarch. Okay, so here's another example. The U.S. Constitution, as originally written, is the supreme law of our land. That's its function. It does not include, however, as many suppose today, the full history of Supreme Court interpretive decisions appended to it, as though these judicial decisions had the weight of law. They absolutely do not have the weight of law. However, they have been allowed to function as though they have the weight of law in our land, as, as though they're equal with the, with the Constitution. And this is a case of overreach of usurping the jurisdictional boundaries of power, which alone make our government capable of protecting our liberties and keeping it from devolving into tyranny. You see, the consequences of undermining those checks and balances are grave. The indisputably corrupt event of Roe versus Wade is a, is a prominent case in point. You know, that has led to the unlawful murder of millions of legal citizens in our nation. So we can, we can take care of illegal non-citizens with great compassion, but we betray our own citizens at birth. Well, we have only scratched the surface today on this topic, uh, which is really at the crux of why Evangeline Nation exists. Um, at the intersection of Ecclesia and Polis, is where I believe Jesus Christ calls each one of us to be. That is the intersection of church and state. That is where our daily life is and where our civic responsibility remains. So we live at the intersection of heaven and earth. You know, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. It's our birthright, our baptismal vocation. It's the call of the gospel. Well, if you would like to reflect further with me on the meaning of Christianity today, be on the lookout for Evangelin Nation courses coming within the next year. And until then, please feel free to uh, check in with us each week for our Thursday podcast. And um, also feel free to donate to this ministry. You know, it's a labor of love and your financial support is appreciated and is uh, uh, put to good use. So you can click on the support button in Anchor Podcasts 
or just go to evangelination.com and click on the tab for donate. So uh, my thanks and prayers go out, especially to all our donors and volunteers. And, uh, and to all of you listening, may grace and benediction be yours. I'm praying for you. Pray for me. That's all for today. Bye now. Thank you.